this morning to the seventh chapter of Romans, Romans chapter seven. We do have several, as we said today, with I guess the last gasp of summer and some vacations. We have some of the first gasp of winter, and Jan is among them. She picked up a cough. We had a family camp out, getting people together with schedules. You know, it's difficult. This last Friday night was the one in the fall that worked, and uh, it was dry. I had a good campfire with the family, a lot of little ones, lots of marshmallows. And then about 7 a.m., rain. Everybody's wet. Everybody's, well, preacher's not sick, he hopes. But anyway, uh, it's good to be with you, though, today. I was taken in our scripture reading. I always or very often am taken with the connection between our successive readings and the passage or the message and theme for that day. And this certainly was one of those Lord's days because Ephesians 4, so many of the truths that we will look at in Romans 7 today. I want to read from verse 14 to the end. These are the verses that we'll consider. We've been looking at this chapter, which in many, and to me in many ways it's remarkable that it is a chapter that has received so much discussion and so many differences of opinion. Um, I was listening to some messages some years ago by a man named Ted Donnelly uh, from Northern Ireland, not one of our men, but an evangelical Presbyterian there. And uh, he just paused in the midst of a message quite on a different context and said, quite frankly, I've never understood people that take a different view from uh, the one that is common that in Romans 7 Paul is talking about inner conflict within the believer. It just seems so parallel to our experience. Um, and that has always been my mind as well. I don't want to go through all the questions today. We'll address some of them along the way. But I want us to read and ask the Lord to give us help as we consider this third and last section of Romans 7 today. So reading from verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent into the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We'll end our reading, again trusting the Lord to add his own blessing 
to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do ask the Lord to help us bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we come again with the echo of a hymn. Oh, for a closer walk with God. Well, here is the cry of the Apostle as he puts before us the struggles of the new man. Lord, we pray that you will give grace to us today, that you'll give understanding, and that we might have something of growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless us as we come to consider your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The last section of Romans 7 has been interpreted, as we've already suggested, in a variety of different ways and by a variety of different people. There are those of higher life persuasion, those of their perfectionists that make use of this passage. I find that in many ways very difficult, except that they just view it as a stage that you have to get beyond. There are others that are reformed, and we would agree with them and have great consent with all the major doctrines in pursuit of our understanding, and yet some of these have differing opinions from one another when it comes to the passage. The reason for the difficulty obviously lies in the fact that Paul is describing here an inner conflict, something that is uh, a tension that exists in the life of the believer. They're competing in contradictory impulses that are present with the one that is described here in this passage. I won't try to describe and debate all the different viewpoints today. They do run the gamut. To my knowledge, it's the first time I've ever written the word gamut. I had to look it up. Anyway, that's just a little side note. But they do run the gamut. They're all over the place. Some say that the man described here, because there's not even agreement, that Paul is the one he's talking about in the passage. It's just some generic man as an illustration. Some say the man described here, again, not all agreeing that it's Paul, must be an unregenerate man, because he describes himself as carnal, sold under sin. Some rightly observe, to my understanding, that this man here delights after the law of God, which is, we find in chapter 8, something that's impossible for the unregenerate man. And so interestingly, some describe this man, we won't pursue all of this, but a common understanding, not just from this passage, but through all of the scriptures, is a modern view that's kind of a halfway house, the carnal Christian theory and one that can really be a Christian, but yet he lives like the world. That's been really uh, a terrible heresy, quite frankly, that's plagued the evangelical church, stemming from easy believism and an Arminian understanding of the gospel. But here as we come to consider this passage, this man that is feeling this tension that is within himself, he struggles. Why? I found another interesting interpretation of this. Some have suggested that Paul is here describing himself or any Christian that is in a stage between his lost condition and his saved condition. It's a season in which he's under conviction but is not yet born again. 
But how can a man be unregenerate and regenerate at the same time? Or how can a man be neither of these at any point of his experience? There's another view that, quite frankly, was surprising to me to find as I surveyed the commentaries, and I had not seen this one before. Some have suggested that what Paul is doing here is describing a person in this particular season early in the New Testament church that's struggling to get from the Old Testament to the New Testament understanding of the gospel. That one, I think, has obvious problems as well. Well, again, I don't want to, more than I've already done, try and survey these varied views. There are others and nuances of each, to be sure. But by far the most common and the Reformed position generally, has been that Paul is describing the conflict that is experienced by believers. The struggle within the child of God between the two natures. The certainty, this certainly rather fits the context, as we shall see, and it also fits the pattern that we've suggested already. There is tension in the life of a believer. It's described in different ways. We can look at it in some places of Scripture as the already and the not yet. Actually, that's a summary of some of this teaching with regard to the kingdom of God, is it not? There's a sense in which the kingdom is already here at the coming of Christ. There's a sense in which the kingdom isn't yet manifested until the second coming of Christ. Well, the already and not yet tension belongs to the child of God in this life. It's often commonly spoken of, and I think, well, that there is a distinction in the believer between his standing, that of full and perfect justification, and his state, one whose life still has the present experience of sin. And really, we suggested this many times along the way over the years, this whole thing that we speak of as sanctification. The pilgrim journey, that, that season of life in between the point of our conversion and our full, final justification and glorification, our full, final changing into the image of Christ, the season in between when we're justified fully but not glorified yet, we speak of as sanctification. So yes, there is tension in this season of life between justification and glorification. And ultimately, as we'll see in chapter 8, only the resurrection will resolve this tension. So as we again try and focus in a little more on the context before we wrestle with the questions and problems of this last section of the seventh chapter, Think about what we've seen already. In chapter 6, Paul has presented something of this conflict already. In chapter 6, we're free from sin. And yet we must still battle against it. Well, if we come to chapter 8, skipping over, there we find we're free from death, or we will find we're free from death, but yet we wait for the redemption of our body. There's a way in which we haven't experienced final release from death. In the same way, in chapter 7, we see something of this already not yet tension. We're free from the law, 
yet we struggle with meeting its standard. If we come to look at the portion then where we find this struggle most clearly put before us, this last of the three sections in this chapter. Paul is wrestling here, giving us a description of the believer's conflict, using himself to illustrate the matter, but I think it's vital for us to remember in the context of Romans 7 is where Paul is speaking of this inner struggle. Paul is not seeking to give an exhaustive autobiography of every piece of his own journey. He's using himself as an example, as a ready illustration of the main point that he is making, but the point he's making isn't about Paul. Chapter 7 is about the uses and the limitations of God's law. It is the law that is under discussion in Romans 7 and not Paul. And I think it's vital for us to understand that. Paul comes into the picture. He uses himself as an illustration of the picture because it touches all of our lives as believers. But it's the law that he's fleshing out in this chapter. He's focusing thought very intently on the law of God. And as we said last time, its uses and its limitations And it's really to those limitations that the latter part of the chapter brings us today. I want to give a a title to our message today. I don't know that it's one the um, technology guys will be able to work into the field on sermon audio. We'll have to work on that later. But what we've looked at over the last two weeks and this week today kind of works out to a sentence. The first six verses of Romans 7 We're freed from the law. Verses 7 to 13, which we saw last week. But the law is good. Verses 14 to 25, we consider today. It just can't justify or sanctify us. We're freed from the law. But the law is good. It just can't justify or sanctify us. Paul, and what we saw in the verses we considered last week, has here and previously in Romans clearly outlined that justification is by faith and not by the works of the law. That's really what's brought the whole discussion about the law to the surface. We could borrow his phrase from Galatians, wherefore then serveth the law. Paul, if we can't be justified by the law, is it just thrown away? And the answer to that is no, it can't be thrown away. The law has dominion over us. We looked at that covenant of works. God can't ignore his own righteous demands. He can't ignore what is justly required of us in order to be in his presence. It's the gospel, the covenant of grace, that answers our need with reference to the covenant of works. The law of God. And so we come now to, I say, this describing of the conflict that is present in the believer. In a real sense, verses 7 to 13 teach that the law can't justify, and verses 14 to 25 teach that the law can't sanctify. Now, one truth that cannot be missed is that although there is conflict, and at times the flesh is strong, 
The real believer, the new man, is a man that does agree with the law of God. The new man is a man that patterns his life after the law of God. And so when we come to look at this, and it will flesh out as we go along, Paul's not describing here a man with two equal natures. He's not describing a man with two selves, if you will. I remember hearing teaching more than once in my youth, you know, you've got these two parties, and just whichever one you feed most is the one that's going to win. No, Paul's describing here the true believer, using himself as an example. There's a new man. There's a real me. And if you look at how he describes that, he speaks about delighting in the law of God after the inward man. That's not true of the old nature. That's not true of the unregenerate. He speaks about, in more than one place, it's not me, but sin that dwells in me. It would be important to recognize, as we hope to, Paul's not there giving an excuse for his sin. Oh, that's not me, it's just sin, so it doesn't matter. No, he's describing the real him in contrast to the old him. When Paul says, in me, notice the parenthesis that he gives there in verse 17. I know that in me, or verse 18 rather, and then the parenthesis, that is, in my flesh. I've always felt that an interesting pause. Paul's distinguishing there the real me from the flesh that still dwells within me. And that's vital in understanding the Christian's experience. So what I want to do today is seek to just give some simple observations and pull together the themes and the thoughts that Paul is sharing with us in these verses today. For understanding, again, Paul's not giving just a detailed autobiography. He's speaking about the function and the limitations of the law of God in the scheme of redemption. He's using himself as an example of the truths that he's fleshing out along the way. So if we take our theme today then that the law just can't justify or sanctify us, our main theme today on sanctification. The first thought we put before you then is this. The pure character of the law is not enough. The pure character of the law of God is not enough. We read in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. We've read last week, the law is holy, just, and good. The law has a pure and perfect character. It must, because it is a reflection of the character of God. It is built upon the character of the one who gave it. The law couldn't be anything other than what it is, because it follows after who God is. God is Love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. One of the things that we remark when we come to consider the law of God and we've seen along the way is the spirituality of the law. Well, here's the direct statement in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. 
Again, it strikes me so often in conversation that this is a, a part of gospel truth that is so often missed. And yet that's always the pathway that the fleshly mind takes it. The self-righteous mind takes it. The self-righteous want to look at the law as something other than spiritual. Something that just touches particular deeds that we would do. And if we can hold back from doing those, then we're okay. You think about Paul when he was a Pharisee who thought that he was keeping the law of God. He saw his self-description last Lord's Day. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. As touching the law, he was blameless. You think of his mindset toward the law at that point. Something that he possessed the ability to perform. Something he had succeeded in fulfilling. Something he could hold before the gaze of God and men. Maybe the Pharisees, as our Lord pointed out, the emphasis on the latter. They love to be seen of men. Paul at that point did not understand the law. He was comfortable when he looked at the law and then looked at himself. But his eyes are opened by the Spirit of God. He comes to understand the spirituality of the law. He comes to understand its purity, that it reaches the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he's convicted by the law. And we saw that description in the verses from 7 to 13 last Lord's Day. The law came. He would not have known sin but by the law. He would not have known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And he sees that this spiritual and holy law applies to him. And he comes short of the glory of God. But I find it interesting here. Paul now, not the Pharisee who thinks he's checked off the boxes, but the renewed man who understands the true nature of the law. That law that condemns him. That law that he can never live up to. He delights in it. Doesn't that seem strange? You think it would be the opposite. That he would have had delight in the law as a Pharisee, and perhaps he did, but it wasn't a true law that he a law that he understood. Now he understands it. He sees himself condemned by it. He sees himself unable to meet its righteous demands. And yet he delights in it. Well, that's the character of the new man. But yet delighting in the law, seeing its pure character isn't enough. Seeing the purity of the law can't change Paul. Remember a couple of Lord's Days back we gave the summary of Romans 7 by John Brown. The law can't make a bad man good and the law can't make a good man better. Well, that's what Paul is explaining and underscoring here. He views the law now correctly. 
He sees it as spiritual. He sees it as holy and just and good. But yet that hasn't changed him. He still doesn't conform to it. We can suggest secondly here, the convicting power of the law is not enough. Paul speaks here about those things that the law has claims upon him. He has said in the previous section that it is this law that has convinced him of his sin. Paul here gives us interesting truth with regard to the heart of the new man. Because again, it's only the new man that experiences this struggle. Paul doesn't look at the law and that convicting power and fight against it. No, Paul agrees with the law. And that, as I say, a mark of a new man. The ungodly, or even the self-righteous, want to look at the law, and they don't agree with it. They either say that it doesn't matter, and they walk in their own way in their ungodliness and blindness, or the self-righteous look at the law, And they don't see it for what it really is. Its convicting power hasn't landed on them. They don't feel the weight of its requirements and their own falling short of those requirements. They start redefining it. Instead of agreeing with it, they redefine it. It's true with perfectionists. I've spoken with some that are not reformed that would with a spiritual understanding that hasn't quite penetrated to their theological statement. Talk about those that look at the law, think they've reached Christian perfection. They've gotten the root out, as some describe it. Paul very much is saying in these verses, the root is still in there. There's another day coming. There's a point not yet where that root is finally eradicated. But what is true of the perfectionists? They redefine the law. It's the only way they can come out from under its condemning force. To make it say less than it says. And that's not what Paul is doing here. He's letting the law say what it says. He agrees with the assessment of the law against him. His problem is that agreeing with that assessment isn't enough to make him a perfect man. Agreeing with that assessment isn't enough to give him power and victory over sin. Paul has said, as you read through, as we've read the section together, to will is present with him. How to perform that which is good, he finds not. I remember when I was coming into the Reformed faith, those words, those phrases that I just read were powerful to me because it hadn't necessarily been directly stated, consciously put in front of me. But a lot of the preaching, again, plug it into the context, here Paul saying the law isn't enough to sanctify us. A lot of the preaching that I was under was a law-based sanctification. And it assumed 
that the people out there, you know, the carnal Christians and all, they weren't willing enough to obey. And so the preaching came hard. You're out there sinning. Your heart's not right. You've got to get your heart right. How many of you want to have a good heart? How many of you see now what the law is saying to you? How many of you are going to agree I'm not going to do that anymore? They raise their hands or they walk the aisle and yet they stumble again. And then they hear another sermon and they assent to it. The problem is the will is present there. The renewed mind agrees with the law. It's just the law doesn't convey power and victory. But when we try to sanctify ourselves by the law, we end in continual failure. You think about the will being present with me. The gospel understands that the new man assents to the law. He even agrees with the convicting power of the law. When the Spirit of God comes to him by the law and says, you're in transgression. You're breaking the law of God. We agree. It's how to perform that which is good that we find not. And the law doesn't give us that power. And how many believers have gone through the endless cycles of decisionism? They have with a wrong view of the law tried to use the law or we would never use it as a means of justification. We believe in justification by faith alone. But the law is what's going to sanctify me. And here's where it gets difficult. Sanctification, growth in grace, let's go all the way to glorification. What's going to be true of us in our glorified state? We're not going to be lawbreakers anymore. We're not going to sin, which is the transgression of the law anymore. When I came to understand Reformed theology, covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the place of the moral law of God, the act of obedience of Christ, well then the law is the means of sanctification. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, that's not the issue. I'm trying to remember. I have some notes on this. I have two desks now. One in Greenville and one in Winston. These notes in the folder they're in is on that desk. So I could miss quotes in Claire Ferguson here. But he speaks of the law not as a car but as a map. The law, yes, defines right and wrong even for the believer. And in sanctification, our lives are to be more and more conformed to the law. It still defines right and wrong. It still defines good and bad. But the law doesn't have the power to move us. To the contrary, the flesh fights against it. We need something other than law. We have to go in the path of the law to be sanctified and to grow in grace. But we need something more than the law. That phrase, to will is present with me. 
how to perform that which is good, I find not. The interesting thing is, is that many a preacher will come and try and tell you how to do it. We've had a plague in the last half century or more of how-to-ism in Christianity. And people here, since their failure, (coughs) struggle with the law, hear a message about their failure, they agree with their failure, they resolve they're going to do better, but they're pointed again back to the law. They're pointed back to their own resolve. Paul here gives confession of his own condition. He understands, he agrees. It's not true of the ungodly. He's not trying to excuse his sin. He's agreeing with the law. But he sees another law. Another principle in his members. Warring against the law of his mind. Warring against the real Paul. (coughs) How does he get victory? I think it's important as we understand this struggle. Paul is not trying to give a statistical analysis of his failures and victories. He's not saying here, well, I fail most of the time. He's clearly not saying here, I have victory all of the time. He's giving a statement here, again, he's speaking about the role of the law, its functions, and its inabilities. Here he speaks about sin that would, well, as he says in Hebrews, easily beset us. He's worked through the struggle. He's confessed that law that's present with him. It's not the real me, but sin that dwells in me. There's another principle in my members that's warring against the real me. He even speaks of it with reference to captivity. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This other principle can bring me into captivity. But let me give our third statement today. The pure character of the law is not enough to sanctify. The convicting power of the law is not enough to sanctify. Only Christ, by his indwelling spirit, is enough to sanctify. Paul ends Romans 7, chapter with such deep and personal reflection about the law with a note of thanksgiving and a note of victory. He says, I thank God. He's cried out, O wretched man that I am, but he's not hopeless. He's cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? There is deliverance. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. That sin that would come in and beset me. There is a path of victory. You see, sanctification is by faith too. It's not justification by faith and sanctification by law. It's justification by faith and sanctification by faith. He's going to come in chapter 8 and really in some ways it is this description of the inability of the law to justify or sanctify even though the law is still there and the law is still good. What does he bring alongside of it? Again, 
following the flow in his argument. If the law isn't enough to justify or sanctify us, what is? The Spirit. He comes in chapter 8 and speaks about the Spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus that's made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, verse 3 of chapter 8, could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And He follows on. We can't get in and preach Romans 8 here, obviously, at this point. But I say chapter 7 ends, even though it speaks of this inner conflict. It speaks of the real, renewed man, and yet the old man that fights against him, sin within him. The law is not enough to put that down. We can resolve. We can make decision after decision after decision. But the law doesn't empower us. It's the Spirit that empowers us. And so our third thought and statement is this. Only Christ, by His indwelling Spirit, is enough. You see, when we come to a point of struggle or temptation, we can't get out and say, well, you know, the law, and I understand the law now, it touches even your thoughts. That's not where we get power. We come to the law and say, yes, the law says this is wrong. And I agree with that. But that doesn't bestow power upon me. If we can borrow our phrase, it's gospel thinking that bestows power. When we understand and apply the gospel, we look and say, yes, all these things are true with regard to the law of God, with regard to the nature of sin, with regard to my own heart. But what has God done for me in delivering me from the law? He sent Christ. He's taking me out of the kingdom of darkness and placed me into the kingdom of His dear Son. He has received and accepted me in the Beloved because the Beloved was rejected and punished instead of me. It's reviewing the Gospel. It's understanding the Gospel. It's contemplating the work of Christ for my soul. It's contemplating the position that has been granted to me by Christ. And the Spirit showing me that this isn't me. I am Christ's. This doesn't belong to me anymore. And here's where we begin to have deliverance. Here's where we begin to have victory when we understand our position. We apply that position to the current crisis, to the struggle. Then we're helped. Then we're enabled to fight with victory and with success. The law doesn't bestow that. The Spirit does. Justification is by faith. Sanctification is by faith. I close with drawing your attention. You'll not need to turn to it, but the familiar words of Galatians 2 and verse 20. Think about this verse in the context of Romans 6 and 7 and ultimately 8. 
I am crucified with Christ. Romans 6, I died when He died. Nevertheless, I live. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Understanding the biblical teaching with regard to faith. The Arminian, self-righteous, works-oriented mindset looks even at faith as the work that we do that makes us accepted. Faith isn't something we did when we got saved and it's in the rearview mirror. Faith is something we were brought to at conversion. And we live continually in. We're described as believers. And so Paul said, the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can look at the law and I see its purity and its demands. I can look at me and see my impurity for all my best efforts. And I can fall on my face when temptation hits, when I'm looking there. But I look at Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Then I'm enabled with renewed vigor, with gospel understanding, with gospel thinking to contrast my position with this temptation. To contrast what is true and will be true forever of me in God's presence with sin that would pull me down here and now. And that is where we gain strength. That is where we gain help. Again, Paul, yes, speaks in this chapter of himself. And interestingly, Paul is not giving a statistical analysis, I say, of failing most of the time or failing all the time. No, he's just saying, the real me is here, but there's an old me that rears its head. I would to God it weren't so. There's coming a day, Romans 8, which it won't be so anymore. How do I gain victory now? Who will deliver me? Well, Christ. He's delivered me in justification. He's going to deliver me in glorification. Thank God He's able to deliver me now in sanctification. This life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me in my war against sin. It's faith in Christ that gives victory because the law never could. So I say we look at this chapter and we've just hastily in these three weeks gone through the paragraphs. Yes, we are freed from the law in Christ. But the law is good. It just can't justify or sanctify us. Only Christ can do that. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we ask, as we have read perhaps familiar words, 
Give us grace and the help of Your Spirit to understand them and contemplate them anew in the privacy of our own hearts. Sin may indeed live in us, but we as believers do not live in sin. And so we do say with Paul, yes, there is that wretched man. But then with thanksgiving we say, we're delivered in Christ. Lord, we come, Lord, not to a presentation of a crisis and a call for decision, but just a prayer as we leave consideration of this passage that we would each have to confess with the Apostle is descriptive of the inner conflict we so often face. Lord, give gospel help. Give us the help of your Spirit to turn our eyes upon Christ. Not to trample the law underfoot, but to understand how it functions and then what it can't do for us. But you have done for us in Jesus. That you are delivering us from this body of death. The body of this death. And Lord, that we might each be helped by the Spirit to gain victory. To grow in grace. Yes, with the apostle to groan, but yet the groaning stemming from a spirit that longs more and more to be like and to be with Jesus. So take up your word and write it on every heart today we pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.